0: If you would, open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 to 22. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 to 22. The page numbers are written there in uh, your bulletin for the Pew Bible that is in the seat in front of you. I just want to let you all know, uh, I mean, we live in a world where there's, it just seems like there's just criticism all the time. I grew up playing sports, and so it felt like often my life was just the film room. We often don't hear much encouragement. And I want you guys to know, and this is no flattery or exaggeration. We just did a confession of sin about exaggeration. Y'all, y'all really are an amazing church. Uh, the love and the friendship and the hospitality that, that me and my family have experienced uh, from this group, is uh, it, it's been amazing. And uh, I want to let you know, you and your officers have just loved us so well. And I want you guys to know you really are a great church. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll read verses 12 to 22. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on the way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do do I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. His spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are asking that you would truly speak to us from your word. That you would change our thoughts, change our hearts, change our attitudes, so that we might reflect the glory of Christ, he who we see here in this text. Holy Spirit, only you can do such a work, a work that we desperately need in our hearts, a work, a work that Stillwater desperately needs. For, Father, we are gathered here in your presence to worship you through the preaching of the word. So would you enable us to do so? We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. From his early childhood, John Patton wanted to be a missionary. Before studying theology and medicine, Patton had served 10 years as a Glasgow City missionary. After graduation, he was ordained and he set sail for the New Hebrides as a Presbyterian missionary. Three months after arriving on the island of Tana, Patton's young wife died, followed by their five-week-old son. For three more years, Patton labored there alone among the hostile islanders, ignoring their threats, seeking to make Christ known to them before escaping with his life. Later, he returned to those same people and spent 15 years there and on another island. Patton was working one day in his home on the translation of John's Gospel. And he was puzzling over this Greek phrase in John chapter 1 verse 12, the Greek words pestuo ace," which means to believe in or to trust in. He was asking one of the natives, his, his translator, he was asking how he could accurately translate what it meant to believe in Christ. What was interesting is that that culture had no word for trust in their language What am I to do, Patton asked him. So what he thought about is that as he sat at his desk and as he put both feet off of the floor, he sat back in his chair and he looked at his translator and he said, what am I doing right now? And in reply, Patton's servant used a verb which means you lean your whole weight on that chair. That was the phrase that John Patton used to translate the Greek phrase to believe in. Putting your whole weight on the chair. Why do I use that illustration? Because one of the things that we struggle with in today's world, speaking of the popular hashtag fake news that we've often seen the past four to five years, we struggle to trust anyone. We struggle to see men and women who have genuine integrity. Is there anything, is there any institution that we can put our full weight upon? often the question of today. The Corinthians were struggling to know if they could put their whole weight on Paul's ministry. They were wondering if they could really believe that Paul's gospel had genuine integrity. What Paul is trying to do here in this text is he's trying to show them you can lean wholly. You can, as it were, pick your feet up and Put your, all your weight on this chair of gospel ministry. And it's not because of Paul himself, but it's because of the work of Christ in Paul and through Paul. All this series so far, we've been wondering what true gospel ministry is. And this is what true gospel ministry is. True gospel ministry has true gospel integrity. And that word for integrity is a good word that Patton was thinking about in the sense that when you pick up your feet and rest your full weight on it, it will hold you up. And that's what the gospel of grace does. It holds us up when we give it nothing. Because true gospel ministry has true gospel integrity, we see here in verses 12 to 14. True gospel ministry has a clear conscience. Look back at verse 12. Paul says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. Paul is boasting in the fact that he has a clear conscience in the way he's behaved in their presence. We do need to ask the question, First off, what is the conscience? Well, the conscience is is that inner compass that directs you to, to what's right and steers you away from what's wrong. That's often why, whenever we do right things, we feel good. It's also why, whenever we do wrong things, we feel like something's wrong. But what's interesting is that the conscience, because of sin in our lives, the conscience is not always a working compass. Sometimes it does lead us to where true north is, but oftentimes our true north can be, as it were, disturbed by another magnet. But here's what happens in the conscience whenever we become a believer. The Holy Spirit does his work of removing those magnets that would kind of venture us off the path of the gospel. Interesting, I I have this compass. This is always on my desk. I've used this as an illustration before, and it's just this kind of open up compass and um, I'm assuming it works right so at least pointing north that way so uh, there we go but there's an inscription here and this is from my dad and it says this always keep Christ as your true north this is what the Holy Spirit does in the lives of believers in their conscience he redirects the compass to point to Christ who is the true north And in our conscience, believers, we learn more and more what is right according to Christ and what is wrong and against his ways. That's what happens in the conscience. Paul is saying that in his conscience, he believes that he has acted clearly, responsibly, purely in his ministry towards them. Paul says not that he's, he's not saying that he's never sinned against them. But he's saying that by God's grace, he has acted with simplicity and sincerity. Simplicity means this. Paul is saying that I was fully open to you. Uh, I was upright before your eyes. In other words, it's the saying of you know, you, what, what you see is what you get. I, I have a couple of friends uh, where whenever they meet someone, if they meet one of my other friends... I will tell that friend, hey, what you see is what you get. In other words, there's not going to be a version two of that person elsewhere. That is who they are. That's integrity. That's simplicity. Paul also says that he acted with sincerity. In other words, he was honest. He was straightforward with them. In other words, Paul was not saying yes to them and then no behind the scenes. He wasn't yes to them in this way. And then with another group, maybe the Galatians, he was a different Paul. Paul is saying, my conscience is clear that the way I've done ministry to you, that it's been with simplicity and sincerity. That's really important. Because here's what was happening in Corinth. In Corinth, the people were being tempted by false teachers to think that Paul was a liar. They were being tempted to think that maybe Paul was not being honest with them. And that because Paul was not being honest with them then they didn't need to trust Paul, and they definitely didn't need to trust his gospel. You see the big deal there. Paul's not getting, in the bad sense, he's not getting defensive, but in the good sense, he's defending himself because he knows what's at stake. Because if they think that Paul's a liar and therefore his gospel is not trustworthy, then they'll turn to something else which is no gospel at all. Paul is saying, look, I have acted towards you with a clear conscience. In other words, there was no inner voice in Paul telling him that he was lying to the Corinthians. Paul says that he had a clear conscience because of the way he acted and his behavior towards them. He also had a clear conscience because of his message. You see that actually in verse 13. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. Paul is saying... That, once again, what you read is what you get. There was no secret code behind that. You see, for us, we need to remember it's one thing to speak, but another thing to communicate. It's one thing for us to tell someone something. It's another thing for us to make sure we communicate with them so that they know what we're talking about. Now, Paul did that as much as he was able But the problem was on the Corinthian side because here's another thing that can happen. Sometimes we do communicate the way we should communicate. But then other times people will take it in ways we didn't mean it to be communicated. Paul did all he could to communicate to him what his plans were, what his ministry was. But the Corinthians needed to understand Paul in the way he was seeking to be understood. And in that sense, Paul is saying, look, I have a clear conscience. I have been honest with you. I've not led you astray. I've not done this and then done another thing behind the scenes. My conscience is clear. Here's how clear Paul's conscience is. Look at the end of verse 14. He says that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. What's Paul getting at there? Paul's saying this, that on the last day of history, when Jesus comes back, He will make everything clear. He will reveal all truth. He will reveal all motives. He will reveal all sin and all holiness. Everything will be crystal clear. Paul is saying, here's how clear my conscience is. That when Jesus comes back and reveals what was really the case with my ministry among you, I trust that you're actually going to boast about my ministry. That is a bold statement, isn't it? But Paul understands that what's at stake here is this. If they don't find him trustworthy, then they're not going to find his gospel trustworthy. That's why Paul's defending himself. I think this gives us a big challenge in this church, in our leadership, even as parents. Are we going about whether we're parenting our children, loving our spouse... Doing ministry in this church, do we have the confidence where we could say that on the last day when God reveals everything, could we stand with a clear conscience? Could we stand with a clear conscience saying, Lord, we strove as best as we could to be faithful to your word no matter what other teachings were out there. No matter what anyone else was saying about us. No matter what threats we experienced. Because that's what will be revealed. That's that's, that's a hard thing to do, especially for officers and leaders, pastors, that we will be held with even more accountability. It's a weighty thing to be up here to preach. It's a weighty thing to be an elder and a deacon because the calling for for that office is this you better be ready to stand before the Lord of glory in all of his holiness. That when he reveals what is true, can you stand there with a clear conscience? Paul is saying by God's grace, he's done that. He's not saying he's had a perfect ministry. And he's not saying that he's never sinned. But he's saying that by God's grace empowering him, he strove as much as he could to have a clear conscience. So, dear Corinthians, that's why you can trust him and his gospel. True gospel ministry has true gospel integrity. You see that in Paul saying that true gospel ministry has a clear conscience. But we also see that in verses 15 and 18 where he says true gospel ministry has a consistent communication. Look at verse 15. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and then on the way back I would visit you again. That's what Paul's saying. He wanted to visit them twice. Here was the problem. Paul wanted, he had the plans, genuine plans... He wanted to visit the Corinthians on the way to Macedonia, and then on the way back, he would visit them again. The problem is that didn't happen. And that was the tension. Because the Corinthians heard Paul's plan saying, Hey, you said you were going to come visit us, but you never did. So, how are we to deal with that? See, what true gospel ministry is supposed to be, it's supposed to have consistent communication. We're supposed to have consistent communication about what our plans are, our genuine plans are. Paul was being very genuine with the Corinthians. He really did plan to visit them twice. Now, this is a section of scripture where maybe some of you are already thinking this. I know I'm thinking this about myself, where you might be saying, well, preach to yourself, preacher. Let me tell you what happens when you get ready to preach a sermon during the week. You want to know what happens? That sermon does its work in your heart first and this was one of those where it was like a knife that just kept going in because I saw in my own self how relevant this is. I'm a, I, as I'm preaching this I'm having to sit under God's authority and hear this because my struggle is one of people pleasing. And often what will happen is because I'm trying to get everyone to like me I'll often miss meetings or I'll overbook situations or I'll have my own miscommunication or I'll just try to keep everyone happy and not really tell them the truth. All of God's people should be convicted by this, because at the end of the day, we all struggle with people-pleasing rather than pleasing the Lord. Here's what Paul says, is that as the gospel is at work in our hearts, we strive the best we can to have consistent communication about our plans. Paul had these plans, and we have our plans, but sometimes plans fall through. Now, when our plans fall through, sometimes that's because of numerous things. Sometimes it's just because we were flat out wrong. We were too hasty in making our plans. Sometimes it's because we lost track of time. Sometimes it's truly out of ignorance. We were sitting at our desk doing other work, and we look up, and you got three text messages, and you realize I was supposed to be in that meeting 20 minutes ago. Sometimes we make bad scheduling, but sometimes we overcommit because we want to be God to everyone. Sometimes we had good intentions, but it wasn't the most wise thing to do. Sometimes it was good intentions, sometimes it was good process, and sometimes it was indeed wise, but God has other plans. Have you guys ever been there? Yeah, I <laughs> heard an amen on that, yes. We have been there. Sometimes we have genuine, honest plans and they just fall through. Other times we can make plans, but we do so in a sinful way. We commit the sin of overcommitment. That's a big thing in our world of idolizing busyness. Isn't it interesting how in the past 10 years, whenever we ask people, hey, how are you doing? Uh, often now the response is, man, things are busy. Because really it's virtue signaling about how important we must be. And we often commit the sin of Overcommitment because we have an idolatry of being respected or getting things done or having notoriety. We have bad priorities. We'll neglect our marriage or neglect our family because we want to idolize work. Oftentimes we overcommit because we fail to believe that we really have limitations. Remember, the original temptation in the garden was if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. Don't miss that often what's happening in our culture today is people are striving to make their own righteousness. And they'll do so by this. Look at how busy I am because I can get stuff done. But honestly, we're all like ducks in water. We look calm on the outside and underneath. We're stressed out and our feet are going crazy. I'm from Alabama. Just delight in that. I saw this work out one way in, uh, in a guy's life. I saw one guy who got in two relationships at one time. You wanna know how that happened? Because he was scared to be honest. What do you think happened in the end? Both people broke up with him. <laughs> what, we're, what we're called to do is to have consistent communication with our plans and to be honest and to have a clear conscience. And all we can do is plan the way we're called to plan, then we let God do the rest. And that's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that he genuinely had these plans, but then there are God's plans. We're striving to follow God, but then all of a sudden he just, he takes us in a different direction. Proverbs 19, 20 to 21 says this, Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Listen to this part. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Have you guys ever had the time where you said, Man, when I go to college, I'm going to go to this college, and then I'm going to major in this major, and then I'm going to graduate with this degree and go on and get that job? How many of you are doing that right now? Welcome to RUF. You'll be doing that all the time, JR. And that was that's my story, it's many of our stories. And and we had those, we had those genuine plans. But then God has his plans. Sometimes that can be it's just not in God's timing. Sometimes it can be we hear good news that gives us more responsibilities, or it can be bad news that has to redirect our focus. Sometimes it can be the weather. So what often happened with Paul. It's actually interesting, this compass reminds me, and uh, the reason why my dad wrote on there, always keep him as your true north, is because we, I grew up in Alabama, and we would go deep sea fishing a lot. And knowing, at least in the Gulf, knowing where true north is, that was very important. And often, when you would go deep sea fishing, sometimes we would have friends who would come down to the beach, and we would say, yeah, we're going to go fishing, it's going to be great. And then there would just be really awful weather, and sometimes it was so bad where you just couldn't go. You had genuine plans, but sometimes even the Lord can use the weather to change directions. Sometimes we're faced with different opportunities. Sometimes we're faced with bad health. Sometimes we can experience persecution or there can be something on the news. Or frankly, there's just the wisdom of other people saying, we think you need to go a different route. God works through those things. And what Paul is trying to tell the Corinthians here is, look... My conscience is clear that the way I've communicated to you, I genuinely had these plans, but God has it, had his plans. All we're called to do as Christians is to be faithful to God, and we'll let God determine how he uses that faithfulness. What Paul's trying to do here is he's trying to, to defend himself because he knows that if they can't trust him, then they won't trust his gospel. And there are the times when we need to defend ourselves. There are the times when we don't defend ourselves and we let other people do it. Then there are the times where we don't defend ourselves and we tell others not to defend us because sometimes we just let those things just come in and go out the back door. But there are the times when we seek to defend ourselves when the gospel is at stake. And that's what Paul's doing. And what Paul is really trying to teach the Corinthians here is this. You might have your plans, but you need to be flexible with your expectations. You might have your plans, but you need to be flexible with your expectations. Paul's telling the Corinthians this. I sought to be faithful to the Lord. And part of that faithfulness was for me to come and pastor you. But God, because of just the mystery of his will, he directed me elsewhere so I could go pastor other people. Here's the thing. Sometimes the gospel will lead you to places you never thought you would go. Maybe that's why you're here in Stillwater. You never thought you'd end up here, but this is where God has taken you. That God knows exactly where he wants you to go to be with those people in that time amidst everything that's going on. Listen, if if our... Whether men and women have a hard time just giving us a seven-day forecast, who are we to know a seven-year forecast of our lives? And what Paul is teaching the Corinthians is this. Yes, as much as you can, be faithful to God and make your plans, but you need to be flexible. And you need to trust that whatever God has, he will make it happen. Wherever God wants to lead you, he'll lead you there. In the meantime, you keep being faithful to him. That's one big thing if we want to know what is God's will for my life. Maybe you're trying to figure out where you need to go to college or where you need to put your kids in school or what job you need to take or whatever it might be. God often does not open up every door or make everything clear in a single moment. Because he wants you to learn to be faithful to him while he takes time to show you where to go. Paul is saying that he was consistent with his communication. He had true gospel integrity. But what's the reason behind this? What's the grounds? What is this this built on? It's interesting because then Paul in verses 19 to 22, he just all of a sudden just starts talking about Jesus. And you kind of, maybe when you first read it, you're like, okay, uh, Paul, where did that come from? It's Paul like ADD, and there's just a rabbit that came in his thoughts. He's, says, oh, there we go. What Paul's say, say, saying here is this. I'm telling you to trust me because my whole life is being upended to learn how to be faithful to God as he has been faithful to me. Amen? God is changing me to be faithful to him, and I will go wherever he has me to go. But how do we know that God's faithful? What we see here, look at verse uh, 18. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. Paul realizes that there's a very intimate connection between them trusting him and them trusting his gospel. Let me tell you what one of Satan's biggest strategies is in the church. It's always been this. Do not be surprised when you will hear other men and women try to slander or do smear campaigns against other men and women in our church who are faithful to the gospel. Do not be surprised. That is exactly what he loves to do. And matter of fact, as we are faithful to God's gospel, we should expect people to slander us. That is what happens all the time because Satan would love to do anything he can to make people in the pew to say, I can't trust the person who's in the pulpit. That's why we're we're striving to be faithful as much as God empowers us to. But the reason why we strive to be faithful to God is because he's been faithful to us. Amen? We're going going to start saying amen here. You all ready? Because Paul is saying that true gospel ministry not only has a clear conscience, not only has consistent communication, but also has a compelling Christ. You see, we have a compelling Christ who has established God's yes for us. You see that in verse 18. God is faithful. And because God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. It's not contradicting itself. I love how Paul says, look, if God is anything, he is faithful. Because the moment that God is not faithful is the moment he is not God. Numbers 23 19 says, does God speak and then not act? Does he promise something and then not fulfill it? It's a rhetorical question. No. It's the being of who God is. The moment that the God of truth tells a lie. The moment that the God who who makes promises, the moment He does not fulfill them, is the moment He is no longer God. Who God is, is the God who is faithful, who is the God who is truthful. And this God has made promises. You see that in verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. What are some of these promises that we see throughout Scripture? Scripture. God's made the promise in Genesis 3 that He would reverse the curse and that He would crush the serpent. He's made the promise that He would take care of our sin problem. He's made the promise that He would take His wrath away and bring it actually upon His own Son. He made the promise that He would make us into a kingdom, that He would save us by grace, not by works, that He would preserve us until the very end, that He would fulfill the law on our behalf that he would then empower us to obey his law, that he would make us holy, that he would give us a true king, that he would grant us new hearts, that he would gather in the worst sinners and turn them into children of God. Did you know that supposedly supposedly according to one person there are over 8,000 promises of God in scripture? God is a promise-making God. If one of these promises does not come true, that very moment God is not God. Now, let me ask you something. Have you ever seen a politician who's obeyed even just the majority of their promises? God's made a lot of promises. His being is staked on it. The moment that one of His promises does not come true is the moment He's not God. My friends, the very fact that God is faithful to his promises is evidenced by the reason we have a church here in Stillwater 2,000 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. Amen? And how are these promises fulfilled? Well, you see very clearly there, verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. All the promises of God find their yes in him. And when it says they find their yes in him, it literally is translated in the Greek, he is not just a yes. It literally has the the definite article in front of that, the English translation, the Jesus is the yes of God's promises. Amen? Meaning that Jesus is the one and only yes of God's promises. That there are no other ways to get these promises. But also that there's no other way for these promises to come true unless Jesus fulfills them. He is the definitive yes of these promises. Meaning that none of them are left out. He's the fullness of this yes, meaning that nothing is ever done halfway. Jesus is the surety of the yes, meaning that there's no way for these promises to not come true. I love what one person says, whatever God has said he will do, in Christ he has done it. Amen? But when it also says that Christ is the yes of God's promises, it means it is the freest, And the fullest of yeses out there. My friends, if you are a believer, if you have Jesus Christ, you have God's yes. Hold on real quick. Make sure I spoke clearly there. If you are a believer, and if you have Jesus Christ, You have the yes from God. Are we alive? I've been doing ministry for about eight years, and I've seen many people get engaged. And I've seen some happy people. And particularly when, when the woman says yes, she's thrilled. And there have been some of them where I just still see it, and it's just amazing. There have been some people who I thought, no one could ever be happier. I don't know if I'll ever experience that joy. That's amazing. I have holy jealousy for you. But my friends, no one has ever been more happy to say yes to you than God has to you in Christ. No one has said yes like that. And it's not because anything was in you. Everything in you was no. Everything in you was curse and sin and death. But in Christ, life, grace, mercy yes. For us to doubt God's yes is to picture God as if he looked like us. My friends, this is the type of yes that draws near to you. This is the type of yes that delights in you, that sings over you, that commits to you, that provides for you, that loves you, that would die for you that reigns on high for you, and that is coming back for you. It's a yes for eternity. When it says that Jesus Christ, that he became the yes, that word there is that it means that it's something that happened in the past that is always always relevant for us no matter what age it is in other words the yes of Jesus Christ is not like a battery that whenever it runs out then you need to go look for another one and it's always at the worst time Jesus Christ never dies down he never runs out he is infinite meaning that God can neither increase the yes nor decrease the yes it is always infinite don't you long for this well one person says because of Christ being the yes, what Paul's centering everything around. From God's side of things and from our side of things, everything is centered on Jesus Christ. Amen? Paul is trying to tell the Corinthians, look, my whole ministry, my whole life has been centered upon Jesus Christ because He is God's yes for me. That means our individual Christian lives must be centered upon Christ the preaching of God's Word, and the teaching of God's Word centered upon Christ. Children's ministry, counseling, evangelism, any life application, friendship, marriage, parenting, work, ethics, how we understand history, how we understand sexuality, it should all be centered upon Christ. Because He is God's yes. Christ is the Son And everything else in our life are like the planets. They're all to orbit around him. And what's happening in Paul's life and what happens in the believer's life is this. Remember, at one point, our our life was was like a compass that wasn't pointing the right direction. We were just, gravitational pull was all over the place. And what Jesus does is he brings us back. And slowly but surely in our life, he starts to put the things in its proper place, in their proper priority, to orbit everything around him. This gospel of grace transforms us so that as we know God has said yes to us in Jesus Christ, we say yes to him. Matter of fact, we don't just say yes to him, but look at the second part of verse 20. That is why it is through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. Amen. You know what amen means, right? In the Hebrew it means, I believe. It is true. You know the reason why we say amen at the end of our prayers? It's not to let everyone know, I'm done praying now. What we are saying is, Lord, we believe that this is true. We believe that you can do this. The Lord Jesus Christ, if you're a believer, He has forgiven all of your sins. Amen? The Lord Jesus Christ has clothed you with His righteousness that will never wear out. Amen? The Lord Jesus Christ, when you die, He will raise you up again on the last day. Amen? The Lord Jesus Christ will take you into glory where you will be with Him in ecstatic, infinite joy for all eternity. Amen? That's the gospel of grace. You see why Paul is very adamant here. Paul is saying that this teaching of God in Christ saying yes to him, it's transformed him to learn how to say yes to God. My friends, do you want to grow in holiness? You want to grow in being honest, having a clear conscience? What's the answer? Well, you're hearing it again, another Sunday. Yes, this is the whole reason why I got up here. Look to Jesus. Because that transforms you. And the more, not the less, the more you know God's yes to you in Jesus Christ, God's yes to all of his promises, for you who have Jesus Christ, the more you know that, you learn more and more to say amen to God and his ways. Amen? There's so much here. I get so excited. But we're not going to be able to get to it because we need to run to the table. But the biggest thing to see here is this. True gospel ministry has true gospel integrity. And what empowers us to have that is by seeing how God said yes to people who deserve a no. And that's what this table represents. This table represents a people who everyone who comes forward You deserve a big fat no. (laughs) I hate to break it to you, but in Jesus Christ, as it were, you get a big fat yes. And He will never take that away. And the gospel call to you, to anyone, children or adult, is to believe that in Jesus Christ today, at this moment, you can receive God's yes. It's not bringing your works to Him, it's not presenting your resume. It's looking at Christ in his resume because he did it for you. And brothers and sisters, when you get Christ, you get a yes that has never been more happy in your life. And I bet some of you have lived years and years and years longing just for one person to say yes. In Jesus Christ, you have that. Let's pray. Father, we're asking... That by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would truly enable us to be fixated on the fact that in Christ we have a yes that is a holy yes, an infinite yes, an eternal yes. And that any promise we see in scripture that it is ours. Father, if there's... Anything that people take away today, may it be that Christ is the yes for us. May you save and sanctify people through that message. We ask all this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.